Today we uh, finish a series, uh, Identity Theft, and uh, kind of the guiding principle to catch you up, to review for those of you who have been around, is that when we were created, we were created in the image of God, and we were created with purpose and value and worth, and we were created in a way that was good. And then this thing called sin entered into the world, disobedience to God, and something happened. Our identities began to get worse. They begin to crumble. They begin to be found in a whole bunch of other things. And we've labeled those things identity idols, uh, an acronym, and that is your items, your duties, others, your longings, and your sufferings. And we've talked about quite a bit in this series that, that most people will find their true identities in one of those five things. You'll find it in the stuff that you have. You'll find it in the things that you do. You'll find it in what others say about you. You'll find it in the things that you hope to do someday. Or you'll find it in the stuff that you've dealt with in the past or are currently dealing with your sufferings. And what we've seen is that if you are in Christ, if you become a Christian, then something magical happens. You are born again and you take on a new identity. An identity that is better than any of those other things because, as we've talked about, all of those things will eventually crumble and they'll leave you hurting and broken. They'll leave you in an identity crisis looking for a new identity. If you find your identity in the stuff that you have, eventually it's going to break, you're going to have a fire, and you're going to have to look for a new identity. But in Christ, our identities are secure and they are eternal and they are much much better. I just want to read you kind of this identity that we have in Christ because we've, we've seen it all now in the book of Ephesians. And so uh, I wouldn't remember them all, but let me just, here it is. Ready? The identity that we have in Christ is alive, saved, specially designed, near to God, blessed, chosen, blameless, adopted, redeemed, rich, heir, member, share, loved, called, equipped, forgiven, a dearly loved child, and wise. That's pretty good, right? I mean, we take and we started with this, that I am blank, fill in the blank at the end of that sentence, and we put a lot of different things there. And those things are given to us or taken throughout our lives based on kind of often these identity idols. But, but Paul looks at us and says, when you say I am, and then you fill in that blank, it should be alive, saved, purpose, uniquely designed, wise, and all these other beautiful things that he said in the book of Ephesians. And so my hope is, is we've gone through, hopefully, hopefully, this is what we're trying to get at. You've started to see, uh, hopefully even on a daily basis, like, oh, I'm finding my identity in this thing. The reason that this has upset me so much is because it's tearing at my identity, my true identity in Christ. And last week in our passage, Paul said just basically this, you should live in light of the identity that you have. And we talked about how a lot of Christians, even if they recognize this new identity, even if they believe that they have this new identity, even if they kind of sense and have taken hold of and grasped onto this new identity, they still live lives that are not in step or in character with the identity that they have been brought to. 
And Paul just gave us just a few quick examples, things that we, that we just barely touched on last week. But he said like this, uh, because of your new identity, you should avoid the hint of sexual morality, impurity, and greed. You should remove obscenities. You should remove foolish talk and coarse joking. You shouldn't get drunk. You should live out a godly morality. You should live a life that exposes the deeds of darkness for what they are. You should live a life of wisdom. You should speak to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. And you should make music from your heart giving thanks to the Lord and everything. And that last part we'll cover in the month of August because we're going to do a whole series on what it means to sing within the context of church. But Paul just like began to kind of touch on these, these different things that should be lived out because we've come to this new identity in Christ. And I gave you a couple of other lists, uh, Galatians 5, 16 through 26 and Colossians 3, 1 through 13. And I would encourage you to go live them be, or read them because what they'll say is in your new identity, you should live this way because in your old identity, you used to live this way. And they give us a really good picture of what it means to live an identity that is found in Christ. But today, Paul, this is beautiful, I love this passage of scripture, what Paul's going to do at really the end of our study in Ephesians, we'll continue Ephesians next week with a whole different topic, but at the end of our study in Ephesians and, and coming up to the conclusion of the book, Paul is like, okay, I've laid out this beautiful identity for you, and now I want to tell you what it looks like, kind of in a day-to-day way, to live according to your identity. Now here, if you're anything like me in kind of our modern society, and I think we find a lot of times, if we could take those identity idols and just pick two of them, we find our identities and the duties that we have and what others say about us. I mean, if you say, hey, who are you? That'd be a weird question to ask somebody at a party. Uh, but, but, you know, what do you do is what we say, right? I mean, that's, and people always respond with their job title. I mean, it's like the first thing we want to find out with somebody because we associate, uh, I think wrongly, associate who somebody is with what somebody does most often. And so we go, hey, what do you do? And they say, well, I'm a teacher or whatever. We find our identities in that. And then we also, I mean, if you're being honest, you find a big part of your identity in what others have said about you or the title that other people have given you. And so from the time you're little, you start to go, oh, well, I guess I've kind of heard that I'm this way, and so I must be this way. And maybe in different groups, you're seen as a different person. And so you kind of live out that identity. And this crowd, I'm the funny guy. And this one, I'm the serious one. And, and so you start to live in light of those identities. And, and part of those identities are the titles that we receive in life. Today, we're going to talk about how you're more than your title. But I mean, you think about it. Like if somebody was asking you, you are, and you said, well, I am, you'd say, I am a wife, or I am a husband, or I am a child, or I am a salesman, a teacher, a pastor, I am a supervisor, a manager. You'd fill in the blank with the title that is based on your duties, the things you need to get done in life, and what others call you. And Paul does this, I think it's brilliant. Maybe you'll disagree, but I think it's brilliant. Paul says, look, here's the situation. You're already filling that I am statement with a bunch of stuff. I've told you you should fill it in with a bunch of different stuff, alive, saved, chosen, all those things. But now I want you to hear this. You are really more 
than your title. And what Paul is going to get at in this passage is, is so grand, and I'll, I'll give away kind of the main point ahead of time. He's going to say that your title doesn't define your identity, but your identity defines how you do your duties. That's a big deal, because we find our identity in our title, but Paul says your identity is not defined by your title. The way that you fulfill your duties within that title should be defined by your identity, hopefully your identity in Christ. The things that I've told you, if I was Paul talking, for like five and a half chapters now. They should dictate how you live out the titles that you have been given. Now let me just say this. There are too many days in my own life where I just kind of live. And I go about, this is what I see in myself and I think other people, I go about my day-to-day business trying to live out kind of one of two things, the social norm for the title that I've been given, or I try to live in a way that, that is just kind of accepted by the person who has given me the title that they kind of like. And so uh, examples of this, uh, in my marriage, for example, uh, I usually just, if I'm being honest with you, I just try to kind of get it done in a way that, you know, Bryn's not going to be mad at me. She's pretty easy not to make mad, so that's nice. But, but Bryn's not going to be too mad at me, and I'm going to feel kind of good about being a better husband than, you know, other people that I know. And I kind of did my job, and I kind of move on. With pastoring, it's not often that, that I, and this is sad to say, but where I really go, okay, let my identity, alive, saved, called, uniquely equipped, drive what I do this week. It's like, what am I supposed to do? What's the expectation? What are other people doing? How should this be done? What makes sense to me? And that is kind of our current reality. Even if you call yourself a Christian, you've taken on this new identity, you just kind of live up to the normal status within your title. And Paul is going to say, If you have found a new identity, then everything changes about how you fulfill the duties that you have in life. He's specifically going to talk about how you live out your your church involvement, how you live out your marriage, how you live out being a child or a parent, and how you live out the work environment. And and I think we're going to see some things that are pretty awesome. But here's one more time. Let's make this so clear in all of it. Every one of these things that Paul declares to us as God inspired him, every one of them are going to be impossible and even seem illogical if you have not said, I will find my identity in Christ and not a bunch of other stuff. You're going to, this is what will happen. If you haven't been paying attention to the last seven sermons, if you have paid attention but said, well, that's who we all find my identity in these other things. If you're not a Christian, all of this is going to be borderline offensive uh, and it's going to be impossible to live out. The only way that what Paul says now works is if you pay attention to the rest of the letter of Ephesians where he has declared you have a new, better, eternal, secure identity that will never crumble like the rest of that stuff. And here's how Paul begins. Ephesians 5.21 is where we'll begin. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's talking about, now if you're familiar with Ephesians 5.20 to the end at all, then you're already thinking about how it sounds sexist and, and what's Chad going to say about this passage of scripture. But, but he begins not by talking about husbands and wives. He begins somewhere else. He begins by talking about our involvement in church. 
521, when he says one another, he's not talking about any specific group of people except for he is specifically talking to a church in Ephesus. And he says, you need to, you churchgoers, you people who congregate together, who worship God together, who build each other up, who push each other forward in your life with Jesus, you need to submit to one another. What does this mean? It means to put under. That's what the Greek word means. It means to lower oneself in importance and emphasis and feelings under somebody else, and in this case, everybody else. It looks like this. When you come to church, when you're a part of church, when you think about your day-to-day life and, and the people you're involved with in church, it looks like this. No, no, no. You're more important than me. No, no. Actually, you're more important than me. No, you're more important than me. No, you're more important than me. I swear, this is what I think, I just really, it blows my mind, that most people have not read the book of Ephesians that go to church today. That's what I'm convinced of, because there's just things in here that it's like, wait a minute, what's happening? Like, let me just give you an example. We had this thing called worship wars. They're not going on nearly as much anymore, because I, I don't know if some, I think people just won in every church, and one side won in some churches, and one side won in another church, and whatever. They were worship wars, and, and we fought about what music to do. I mean, people are fighting about what songs to sing on Sunday mornings because you know what they were doing? Wait a minute, my preference is more important than your preference. Wait a minute, my preference is more important than your preference. And when you get to the top, you just start hitting each other. And Paul says, wait, when it comes to preference and your feelings, then the other person's more important than you. They're more important than you are, or at least you should live like they are more important than you are. I mean, sometimes what we do in church is is we just take the easiest route for us. We just say, okay, what's the easiest way to be involved? I'll I'll show up on Sundays. If somebody bothers me, I won't really talk to them. I'll talk to the people I like. I'll hang out, and, and, and it will be good for me. It's all about me. But Paul says, here's how it should be, given that you have this new identity. You should be thinking about everybody else and what makes church good for them, we could do it in all of our four taglines, or at least three of our taglines. I mean, when we gather together, you can just, I'll just ask, like, are you more focused on what you get out of it or what somebody else gets out of because you're here? Oh, boy. That's not, that's, that's, that's like, that's bad, right? I mean, because you should show up, and we've talked about this a bunch through the years, and we're getting really good at it, I think. I want to compliment you guys. I, I think I'm preaching to the choir as far as churches go, but it could be better, and we'll keep bringing it up. But when you show up on a Sunday morning, the question is not, should I get fed? Did I like the music? Did Chad do a good job? None of those things should be important to you. You should ask yourself, what did I do to make that experience, that time with the Lord, good for other people? That's what submitting is. I mean, that's what should happen. And when you think about connecting with others, are you just connecting with people who will be good for you to connect with in our congregation? Are you just connecting with those people that really kind of have the same personality and like to talk about the same stuff? Or are you lowering yourself and say, I'm gonna connect with people who need to be connected with. I'm gonna connect with the people who need what I can offer in their lives and I'll, I'll reach out to them and be there for them and pray for them and communicate with them and make sure that they know that they're loved in this congregation. When it comes to service, are you going, well, they should do it? I mean, well, they'll, they'll pick up the slack here. Or are you saying, well, they're more important than me, so I better go out there and pound that nail in or do that thing. Or, you know, I should do it because, you know, they're, they're more important than I am in this situation. 
Paul jumps right in. He says one thing that could be a whole sermon that could change, I think, every single church, even our own, because I think we do a good job, but we don't do a great job. If everybody just said, here's the deal, I will treat you and your feelings and your preferences as the most important. It'd be awesome. It would be awesome. And, and Paul continues. Check this out. Wives, uh-oh, nobody likes this. Everybody's okay with the first part, but this is no good. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord for, uh, this is uncomfortable. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Woo-wee. Nobody likes that, right? I mean, that's just my palms are now sweaty. Like, that's, that's uncomfortable. So we're just going to skip it. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so here's the deal. I need to, like, I'm just going to really set this up, and we'll talk about the passage for one minute. There's just some things you need to know as you read this passage, and you should think about this passage that I think really helps it not be that uncomfortable of a passage, a passage that seems sexist. Um, so first of all, you need to know that Paul, the author of this letter, moved women forward more than anybody not named Jesus in the history of the world. Paul, and people call Paul a sexist. It's a bummer deal. I, I mean, it, it's a real bummer deal because Paul, when you look back on his writings and you read them from a modern context and you try to superimpose what we think about women's rights and things like that, you read it backwards, sometimes he looks bad. But if you go back to the time in which Paul wrote these things, Paul literally is moving women forward. And we have, I mean, honestly, you could just, just, just everything that we have in America that seems to benefit women and, and makes women seem, and I think they are, but seem, because that's what we're talking about here, equal to men, it's all because, it's all because Jesus existed and because Paul wrote down letters that moved women forward. Before Paul wrote, and, and in countries where Paul's letters are not influential, Eastern countries primarily, women are treated as pieces of property that men tell what to do. With no questions asked, no other thought, you do what we want you to do and you always do that. But a guy named Jesus came to the earth and he showed women respect and love and he died for the sins of the world and so people, you know, respect him. And then Paul came along and he wrote things and he had women ministering with him and he told husbands, as we'll see in a second, to treat their wives with love, which was a new idea. You just treated your wife how you wanted to treat your wife before Paul wrote. And we sit here today, this is weird, right? We sit here today thinking that this sounds sexist only because we have Paul as the foundation of our belief that women and men are equal and that they all can have a new identity in God that is alive and saved and has purpose and dignity and worth and value. And so you need to understand that as you read this passage of Scripture. The second thing that you need to understand is that this passage doesn't say that women should obey their husbands. That's a different word, and it's a word that sometimes you hear in weddings, right? Like, I, it, I will obey you. We didn't have that in our wedding. Uh, but submit is a different word because we've already talked about this. Submit is not simply obeying, saying, oh, you told me to do it, and I'll absolutely do it. Submitting is saying what we've already talked about. I will make your preferences and your desires and, and your ideas more important than my ideas. Now, here's the third thing. 
Here's the third thing that it says. It doesn't give husbands the right to submit their wives. I think this is how the passage has been used in the past. We look at it and we say, well, wives ought to submit. And so as men, men have done this, I will submit you. And we begin to, I think, not me personally, and I don't think most men that sit in this church right now, but people historically have kind of taken this passage and they said, well, I'll just be the alpha male. I think of my dog. I submit my dog when he was a puppy. I would just take him on his back and I would hold him like this with his belly to me and I became the alpha male. Now it's a little more of an awkward, weird kind of routine. Uh, when we're on a walk and he's not listening to me, I have to get behind him because he weighs 90-ish pounds and I have to pick up his front paws and I have to hold him there and make him look all goofy and I look goofy too is the problem with this plan and hold him there until he realizes I'm in trouble and this is my alpha male and I'm going to do what he wants but that's not that's not what Paul is describing here he doesn't say husbands submit your wives he doesn't say husbands become the alpha male he says look Christian wives you have a new identity and as part of this identity you should make your husband the more important person fourth This passage doesn't suggest that a woman should take abuse. If you're being abused, you should get out of the house. You should go somewhere else. You should leave. It it isn't making your husband more important to let him do something that is inherently sinful over and over and over again. That is not submission. That is probably you having a problem with your identity. And so you don't go away because your identity is wrapped up in this man, not in Christ. This doesn't say that women should sit around and be abused and do nothing about it. It says that they should make their husband the most important. And sometimes I would say that means getting away from your husband. There's a fifth thing that you need to know before we read this, and that is you need to not stop paying attention to me because verses 25 through 31 are coming, and it's going to describe another side of this that is equally important. And so with all that in mind, I want to say this, and I don't want to mince words. I don't want to play around. I'll be honest with you. Uh, The Bible is clear over and over and over again that within two circles, there is a leadership principle that is to be followed. Within the family and within the church, at least, men are to take the top leadership role within a family and within a church. Uh, For me to declare anything else to you uh, would be lying to you about what the Bible says. I'm sure that many people would be happy to do that, Uh, but it it is just what the Bible says. I won't do that. Now, let me just say this. When it says that the husband is the head of the household, It means that the husband has ultimate responsibility for what takes place within that household. And this is probably a big reason that Paul is telling women to submit to make their husband more important than them because the husband has a job to do and it's pretty difficult to do if the wife isn't saying, okay, I respect that and and I, I will make your opinions and feelings more valuable because you have a role in this family and the role is... to to take care of it. We'll see more in a second. Uh, Verse 31 sheds light on really what submit means in this passage. It's not obedience, but in verse 31, you will will see that it says wives should respect their husbands. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. Wives, you should respect your husbands because, I would add, he has a job to do to raise the family in the way that God wants the family to be raised and moved forward. And it's really hard to do if you're not being respected. 
And so, let me, Kyle Snodgrass, who wrote a commentary on the book of Ephesians, said, A wife is to show recognition, this is what he sums up this passage as, A wife is to show recognition of her husband's role and responsibility. Hebrews 13, 17 gives us an idea of what this looks like, what it means, uh, and the same kind of concept, because it says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. That's talking about me. Like, you should make my preferences, this is a weird thing to say, but my preferences, my ideas, more important than yours within the context of church because I'm the one that's going to answer to God someday for your spiritual lives and what happened within this congregation. The reality. Now, I'll just add at that point that the Bible says, don't lord your authority over other people. And, by the way, be a servant leader. And so you should make yourself lower than them, too. And so we kind of got this I'm lowering myself and you're lowering yourself kind of situation. But how beautiful would it be if we could all work that out in every relationship that we have? And so if I could summarize, what Paul says to you who are women who are married is that you ought to respect your husband's leadership because you know that he has a God-given job that is frankly not that easy to raise your family in a way that's pleasing to the Father in heaven who we will sit in front of someday and probably give an answer for what took place within our families. Ephesians 5, 21 through 31. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Husbands are to love their wives. Love is, as I've defined it many times now, them above you as their good you pursue because of their value. And you see that within the very definition that the Bible gives us of love is a lowering, pay attention to this, a lowering of oneself for the good of somebody else. So the wife says, well, I'm going to make it all about your preferences and I'm going to make it all about your ideas and I'm going to lower myself to that. And the husband at the same time is going, well, I'm making this all about what benefits you and what is good for you and what is best for you and for our family. And constantly they're putting the other person up. You see, this passage gets tainted as being putting women down, but really this whole passage in its entirety is about women lowering themselves as men lower themselves in a different way so that the family can be built up in the best way. And here's, now pay attention to this because it's so important, and it says to husbands that we ought to love like Jesus loves. If we're a Christian who's finding our identity in Jesus, then we ought to love our wives like Jesus loves the church. And let me remind you that Jesus loved the church in a way that caused him to sacrifice for the removing of sin and for the growth of of us, the church, the people who now have his identity as our own identity. Jesus stepped out of perfection in heaven, came to earth so that he could live a sinless life and then die on a cross to save us from our sins. And Paul says, hey, husbands, here's your job. Wives submitting, you being willing to lay down your own life for the good of your spouse, spiritually speaking. Paul says to us who are husbands, it is your job to love your wife in a way that moves her forward spiritually. That's a big deal. 
I don't see a ton of that. I see husbands expecting women to do their job and submitting, but not doing their job and sacrificing so that the women and the family, the woman and the family can be moved forward spiritually. This isn't, let me just make this clear, because we, we define a good marriage now as like people who just kind of emotionally feel good about each other still after however many years. That's kind of our definition of a good marriage. And Paul is giving us this totally different, radically different picture of what a good marriage is. A good marriage is a marriage where, where the woman says, your preferences are more important, your, your thoughts on this issue are more important, and the husband's going, well, my thoughts are all about lowering myself because I want to see you move forward in your relationship with Jesus. I don't care how nice you are to your spouse, husbands. I don't care how often you buy flowers or you take her on romantic dates or if you have a date night every week which seemingly become the end-all be-all even in Christian circles for what it means to have a good marriage. I don't care. The question that Paul is giving to you is are you living in such a way? Are you sacrificing of yourself in such a way that your spouse is actually moving forward spiritually in their relationship with Jesus? Paul is demonstrating the right, good, godly relationship. Let me just point out a couple of things. Really, 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 really important. First, men, do your job. I mean, step up to the plate. Part of the reason that we're so spiritually shallow is because men are lazy butts that that aren't accomplishing this. I mean, women are going to church more than us. Women are involved in church more than us. Women are, are trying to dictate the spiritual relationship of our families because they're looking at their husbands and going, well, you're not doing it, so I better do it. And this is just wrong, and it's never going to work. Never, ever, ever going to work. But I'll add this. If you're not married, marry somebody that's going to make this job easy. Because if this is the responsibility you have as a Christian husband, then you better marry somebody that's going to make that job as easy as possible you, somebody who wants to grow in the Lord, somebody that is a Christian already, really hard to develop somebody spiritually if they're not, somebody that's a Christian that wants to grow in Jesus already and respects you before you get married. Women, if you're married, make the job easy. Make the job easy. If your husband asks, did you read the Bible today? Don't say it's none of your business. If your husband calls you out on something and says, this isn't how this should be going, don't say, well, you're an idiot. I'm not going to listen to you. Make them and their opinions more important. And I would like to point this out, and I don't know if it applies here, but how about this? Marry someone who will do their job. If you want to have a good marriage, don't look for somebody that, is, that is, has something in common with you. I have a good marriage. I do. I'm, I'm on one of the big divorce years this year, and I don't see it happening, so I'm feeling pretty good. I have a good marriage, and I'll be honest with you, I have nothing in common with my wife, zero. I mean, we love Jesus. That's it. That's really it. Movies, nope. She hates horrible movies, Fast and the Furious and garbage like that. Sports, nope. She doesn't like it. I do. Art, eh. I don't want to do a craft. And I mean, we have nothing in common, but here's what we have in common. She wants to grow in a relationship with Jesus, and I want to help her grow in a relationship with Jesus. We don't always work that out in the best way. I mean, sometimes there's tension there, and sometimes it's difficult, and sometimes I try to get her lower, and she tries to lower me. And, you know, I mean, it's not always perfect, but I think we have a good marriage, not because, 
not because there's some exciting emotional feeling when we see each other. There's exciting emotional feelings when we see each other because she wants to grow in Jesus and I want to help her and I'm trying to grow in Jesus myself. That is what makes a good marriage. So you better do your job and you better look for somebody who's going to make your job easy. And then Paul says this. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Paul just simply ends with this. Your marriage should be a picture of the gospel. Your marriage should be a picture of God stepping out of heaven to die, this is the men's part, to die for the good of those who become Christians. And the Christian, who the wife in this situation, should be lowering themselves to bring honor to her husband. And I'll just ask, when you think about your marriage... Is it a picture of the gospel? I'm going to do it. I just kind of told myself at this moment right here, we're either going to talk about gay marriage or we're not going to talk about gay marriage. And I don't know, but it's an elephant in the room for me. There was a vote this week, and you know that already, right? You know, if you didn't know that, get out from under the rock. Um, oh, now you're all interested, huh? Ooh, I should just say gay marriage every week before every sermon. What happened is, and you know this already, is that now it's legal uh, for homosexual couples to get married uh, in every state. That's pretty much the end of it. Um, and I want to pause here in this spot and say, uh, ooh, I want to say so much. Uh, but, but first, let me say this. A lot of times, love the sinner and hate the sin it is used to hate the sinner but pretend that we're not. That's the reality of that phrase, and that's what it's become. Oh, I love the sinner and hate the sin. Well, you act like you hate the sinner quite a bit. Uh, and so that's not acceptable. I want to start there. That's not acceptable. We are called to love all people. I, I, I know gay people, um, and I, I like them. I'm just gonna, I, I like the sinner, and I hate the sin. I, I am fond of these people. You know, I mean, there's just, it's like they're friends, and they're there, and we can talk about things, and it's not a big deal. Uh, so let me start there. Uh, let me also say this that I am not political. I, I like politics. I like discussing politics with very few people that I trust to never discuss us discussing politics. Uh, I, I, I pay attention. I vote. I, I'm pretty informed on what's going on, um, more informed than a lot of people my age. But when it comes to my ministry, I will never be political. And in a lot of ways, this is a political issue. Does the nation... Are they allowed to tell people who are homosexual that they can or cannot get married? Is it a state right? Is it a, is it a national right? And that stuff, I, I publicly have no care in the world how you feel about that or what you say about that. Uh, what you think, who do you think can define what the state says about this thing that we've labeled marriage in the United States is not my concern. Here is my concern. Ready for it? And this is why it's getting brought up. The Bible is clear that homosexuality is a sin. And what is driving me nuts this week and why this is being brought up now in church is not because I care. I don't care what the Supreme Court says, to be honest with you. And I know it's going to make some of you mad and other people are going to be mad about what I'm about to say next. Uh, but that's okay with me. I don't care. It's not about that. Because we believe, this is what we believe marriage is. Let me just give it to you. We believe that marriage is a promise made before God. And no government can tell God who he's going to allow to be married or not married. It doesn't matter. We believe that marriage is a covenant made before the living God. When I get in front of people and I do their wedding ceremony, 
I don't care about the part at the end where I say in the power vested in me by the state of Oregon. We don't talk about that once in premarital counseling. Never do I go, oh, by the way, the government will say it's okay and then you can get a tax break and you can go into the hospital room. That stuff doesn't come up. We talk about what it means to be married before God. And so here's what's really bothering me. So many Christians seem to be embracing the sin, not the vote, but the sin that is homosexuality. The Bible is clear. The Bible is crystal clear that that homosexuality is a sin. There's a guy out of Australia, if you want more information, he's written five volumes on the sexuality of the Bible. He is liberal by every standard of that word. Uh, Gets to the end of his five volumes, says, well, I don't care if gay people get married, but the Bible is pretty clear that it's against the rules for homosexuality to be a part of God's plan. And so let me just, let me try to summarize this. Homosexuality is wrong. It's a sin. But we are to genuinely care for and love people who commit every type of sin. I don't care what our country says. While I have my opinions and and the way that I would like to see things go, I just don't care what the government says about how they define the things that we institute. If they said communion was something different, I wouldn't care. It would still be the same thing for us. We would not do it any different. And we believe that marriage is an an institution. Uh, It it is a, a sacrament that we do before God. And it is a man and a woman promising each other that they will spend the rest of their lives together and that they will submit and love one another until the end. And so please, just from my heart to your heart, just don't let any government define what is right and wrong. But don't be a jerk about it. I mean, don't go out there. I mean, because I'm seeing both sides and everybody's making me mad all week. Everybody's making me mad. Like, you're a jerk that I call a Christian. Oh, and you're a Christian who doesn't care about the Bible. Can we just get somewhere in between that and and hold the truth? The Bible has this phrase over and over and over again, truthing in love. And I haven't seen any of it this week. And maybe it's because I've been silent on Facebook because I don't think it's a great place for these types of things. But, But let's truth in love. Not like, oh, I love the sinner and hate the sin, but oh, those gay people suck. Come on, you don't really love people. You're just pretending. But not like, let's just embrace it. So, The Bible is clear. Homosexuality is wrong. What the government says does not change what we call or believe marriage to be. But we must love people. We must love people. And and let me just just throw this out because this is rattling around in my brain too. I'm quickly running out of time. But I don't care that that the government says that divorce and remarriage is okay. So I don't sound like a bigot against homosexual people because people won't believe that I like them and love them and all those things. I don't even like to call gay people gay people because it's like calling a homeless person a homeless person. It becomes their identity. There's no such thing as that. That's not an identity. It's a sexuality. It's not an identity. And not having a home is not an identity. It's a state of life. These are not identities. You find your identity in Christ or you find your identity somewhere else. That's the truth. But, but I, I don't care that the government says that people can get divorced and remarriage. If it doesn't align with what my Bible says, what my God says to me in his word, then I'm just not going to be a part of it. And so we must not throw truth out because the government has said something else. And that's all I have to say about it. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, 
Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. I wish we could get the government to say it's illegal not to do this. I mean, I'm about to have a baby and that would be great. Uh, But this is pretty clear. Children, obey your parents. If you're a child, then it is your duty to obey what your parents have said. But it is also, if you're an adult, your job to honor your father and mother. Honor is a a word that means to hold worth, to estimate. Yeah, that's right. To price, to fix a value or price upon anything. I'll just say this, that it is your job as a person who follows Jesus to bring honor to your parents. I mean, ask yourself this, is the way in which you live your life, is the way in which you treat your parents suggesting that you have placed a high value on them? I know too many people that look at their parents and they treat them as lesser because they're older now or something like that. Or, or they, they have had a broken relationship and they look back at the past sins of their parents. And they say, well, I'll never respect you and I'll never honor you. And if you're a Christian who's finding your new identity in Christ, then the Bible is clear. If you want to live a long, happy life, you ought to, you need to, you should honor your parents. Let me just ask this question. I live like this. I live with this passage in mind. What can you do to make your parents look good? It might just be the way in which you do your job, the way in which you treat people. What can you do? Even if your parents were terrible, even if your parents weren't around, what can you do as a person to show that you value your parents and you want to make them look good? The same idea when it comes to you and your parents, you're not the most important. You need to act like they are. Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in training, in the training and instruction of the Lord. It is significant here that Paul does not say children, excuse me, he does not say boys, he says children. At the time in which Paul wrote, just to prove that he wasn't sexist, just to prove that he moved women forward, the, the normal teaching would have been like, hey, fathers, when you train your boys, because girls got no formalized instruction from anybody. And Paul comes along and says, hey, when you train your children, train them up in the way of the Lord. Just as it is not a good marriage, just because you get along and everything is happy and good, it is not good parenting just because your kid is never mad at you. I'd like to just shout it right out the windows today. I would like to just shout this. It doesn't mean you're a good parent because your kid's happy all the time or because your kid has everything he wants or because you're moving forward the American dream, or because you'll leave them more than you started with. What it means to be a good parent is that you are training and instructing your kids in the things of Jesus, the things that we read in the Bible. That's what good parenting is. And Paul says if your identity is in Christ, then your parenting goals are no longer the same as if you weren't in Christ. You need to be a person that trains and instructs your kids in the Lord. Paul continues... Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor with the, when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. I want to set it up again, just like with the women stuff. Paul did more than anybody else to move the place of slaves forward in society. More than any other human being that's ever lived 
except for maybe Jesus, Paul moved the place of slaves forward. Paul was writing in a time when slavery was rampant. When if Paul would have stood up and said, abolish slavery, people would have looked at him and said, yeah, right, not happening, bucko. Get out of town. But instead, Paul says, look, can't win this war right now, but I'll fight the battles. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain to both slave and master how they ought to interact with one another. And so Paul says these radical things. I mean, we're not slaves, but this is still radical. He's like, hey, slaves, obey. Okay, that's one thing. Obey with respect. That's a little bit tougher. Obey with respect and sincerity of heart, which means like to only have one mind towards serving your master. Or obey when they're not watching. That's even tougher. I mean, Paul says, look, I want you to treat your master like he's the most important person. Man, that's like a radical way to think, right? Because if you're a slave, you're like, I'll do what doesn't get me in trouble. That's how I would think. And Paul says, if your new identity is in Christ, then you ought to go over and above to be a good slave. This has huge implications for the way that we do our jobs every week. I mean, doesn't it? It doesn't, there's huge implications here. I mean, we should work every week as if we're working unto the Lord, as it says at the end of those verses. When you go to your job, you don't go, what's going to get me in trouble? I'll just avoid it. Or what's going to make the boss happy enough? Or what's going to get me a raise? You go, how is it that God wants me to do this? Because my identity is now in him. And then Paul says this other thing that's even more radical. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with them. I mean, this is an unthinkable command. Slavery is built. The whole institution of slavery is built on threats. Don't do what I want, I'll beat you. Act up too much, I'll send your kids away. Run away, I'll kill you. The whole thing hinges on people making threats. And Paul says, "Uh, here's the idea. If your identity is now in Christ, then if you're a master of a slave, here's what I want you to do. I want you to treat them as equals, not having any threats, because you're all equal in your new identity in Christ. This has huge implications if you're a boss, if you're a manager, if you're a supervisor, You've seen both sides of this if you've ever had a job. There are people who just come down, they're harsh on you, they're mean to you, they threaten you. And then there's something else that's nice and kind and loving and gentle and treats you as re- with respect and equality. And, and Paul says if we're Christians, then that's the way we oversee people is we treat them with dignity, recognizing that we are both in Christ. What Paul says in this passage of Scripture is that your title is unimportant. And what the world says is normal is unimportant because if you have placed yourself in Jesus and you have a a new identity in him that is alive, saved, called, valuable, purposed, all these wonderful things, then it needs to dictate the way in which you live your life. Social norms are not your standard. What your parents told you is not your standard. What God wants you to do and be like is the new standard. I want to repeat what I said before. Your title doesn't define your identity. Your identity defines your duty, no matter what your title is. Let me read that again. Your title doesn't define your identity. Your identity defines your duty, no matter what your title is. 
And so when you go about your day-to-day, when you think about how you're going to treat your parents or treat your kids or treat your spouse or treat your, your boss or treat your workers, you don't go, what's normal? What's acceptable? What gets me through the day? What do I want to do? You go, what is it that Jesus wants me to do? What is good for him? Because my identity is now fully in him, and it's a darn good identity. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for our new identities in you. I mean... I don't, apart from you, I would be nothing special, Lord. I mean, nothing special at all. I'd be lost and sinful and broken and hurt and immoral, Lord, and sinful, all the, just all these things, Lord. But you came along and you got me, God. You got me. You called me in to a relationship with you and into this new, wonderful, awesome, incredible identity. And I pray for me and I pray for the Christians who sit in front of me. And I ask, Lord, that that as we claim these new identities, we would live in light of those identities. And no matter what our title is, God, we would not let them define our identities. But instead, Jesus, I pray that we would let our new identity define what our duties are. While the world says just get along with, the, with our spouses, I, I, I pray that we would go, no, it's more than just getting along. It's building up the other person. And while our parents, I mean, our world says just, you know, kind of take care of your parents and whatever, I pray that it'd be more than that. But we would bring them honor and we'd make them look good and we would serve them and not ask them to serve us. And, and I pray, God, likewise, that the parents here all of our new parents, Lord, that that we wouldn't exasperate our children, but instead of of just needlessly making them angry, we would train them in your ways, God. I pray that when we work, it would be driven by you, and when we manage, it would be driven by you and how you would treat people and and recognizing that, that all of these people, God, were created in your image. Everybody else was created in your image. Lord, we've learned for sure that if we're relying on social norms and we're relying on on society just to tell us what we ought to do or ought not to do, it's not even going to be close to your word. And so I pray for this group of people who sits in front of me that it would be all about what you want and not about what's accepted by by a sinful world that has an identity that is in so many things other than you. God, I pray, this is my prayer for this this series, God, that that when people look at us and our new identities and the way in which we live them out, that that, that the, the onlooking world would just be drawn to you because they'd see a difference. And they'd go, wow, no matter what happens, you still seem hopeful. And no matter how many mean things people say about you, you still recognize worth and value and you have self confidence. And even though you've done some terrible stuff, you seem forgiven and joyful. And they would want you because they see what we have in you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. I pray that you take these words that I've said today and you take the, the good stuff and sink it deep into hearts and you would let the bad stuff go out those windows. I ask these things in your holy name. Amen.